verses 26 through 39. That's going to be on page 944 of those Blue Pew Bibles. And uh, if you don't know the letter of Romans, basically Paul's been walking through all this theology about sin and salvation and God's love, and he's reading a, reaching a sort of climax in the book, which is why Romans 8 is one of my favorite uh, chapters of the Bible, because what he's going to say is, no matter what, despite sin and despite circumstance, God's love is with those whom he loves forever. And there's nothing you can do to separate yourself from God. So let's pick up in Romans 8, uh, beginning in verse 26. The Apostle Paul writes, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No! In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. And now if you want to turn over to page 345, at least in the blue pew Bibles, otherwise turn to First uh, Chronicles, uh, chapter 14. We're continuing our series uh, walking through the book uh, the books of Chronicles, which are really just one book. Uh, but we've been calling this Reclaimed, Revived, Reformed, Returned. And uh, as we get into First Chronicles 14, uh, take that on how often I say First Corinthians instead of First Chronicles, okay? Um, as, that's a joke. Um, so anyway, uh, as we... Get into First Chronicles 14. First of all, this is an illustration. The whole story is an illustration of Romans 8 that we just read. 
But what's more, as we get into 1 Corinthians 14, you need to feel the slap in the face that this is. Because this is not where you thought uh, 1 Corinthians 13 was going to go. Because in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, David had come and tried to move the ark, but he didn't take God's instructions into account. And so he just slapped it on an ox cart and started trucking along, and then it hits a bump and Uzzah reaches out and God parrots Balin, breaks out against him, kills him dead. Uh, and so, they all him. Sorry, get my Hebrew right. Uh, so, and uh, Uzzah falls dead. And they don't know what to do, so they just leave the ark at Obed-Edom and go home. And so you'd think the next thing that happens is they figure out the ark problem, but instead we get this. And what, why would this happen? Uh, well, because this isn't necessarily in chronological order, but because the chronicler wants to make a point. He wants to make a literary point before he recalls bringing the ark home. What point is that, you ask? That's the answer to the sermon. So, uh, let's read First Chronicles 14. The chronicler writes, records for us, And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also masons and carpenters, to build a house for him. And David knew that Yahweh had established him as king over Israel, and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more wives in Jerusalem, and David fathered more sons and daughters. These are the names of the children born to him in Jerusalem. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elpalet, Nogah, Nefteg, Jatia, Elishama, Be'aliada, and Elephelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went out against them. Now, the Philistines had come and made a raid in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of God, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And Yahweh said to him, Go up, and I will give them into your hand. And David went up to baal Perazim, and David struck them down there. And David said, God has broken through. There, uh, Perez, uh, Uzzah, it was the breaking out against Uzzah. So now baal Perazim is the Lord breaking through. God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a bursting flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called baal Perazim. And they left their gods there, and David gave command, and they were burned. And the Philistines yet again made a raid in the valley. And when David again inquired of God, God said to him, You shall not go up after them. Go around, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then go out to battle. For God has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as God commanded him, and they struck down the Philistine army from Gibeon to Gezer. And the fame of David went out into all lands, and Yahweh brought the fear of him upon all nations. All I have read to you from the New Testament and the Old Testament is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for the grace and mercy that you constantly show to your people. We are coming here today to listen to your word, to inquire of you. So tell us your will through your word. And Holy Spirit, guide us into repentance, reformation, revival, and restoration, that we may see the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, I think it's fair to say that a lot of you guys here today, a lot of us here today, feel disenfranchised. What do I mean by disenfranchised? Well, let me give you a, a microcosm. In the Marvel movies, I know lots of you haven't watched them, that's okay. But what you need to understand is, when the Marvel movies started coming out, they were these brilliant, brand new superhero movies, like nothing that had ever happened before. And they spoke to something deep within the psyche of the people that were going to see these movies, uh, including me. But as they continued on, especially uh, after the events of Endgame, I'm not going to spoil it, don't worry, uh, things changed. The way the scripts were written changed. And to be real honest, the politics that the writers held became very, very evident. And so it just changed the whole tone of the Marvel movies, which disenfranchised a lot of people. Uh, because it just wasn't the Marvel movies that they loved anymore. For others of you, maybe it's the fact that this ain't your daddy's Star Trek. Anyone heard that one? Uh, yeah. Well, so this ain't your daddy's Star Trek means uh, daddy ain't necessarily happy with the new Trek. And that is just a microcosm of something that's happening in our society. Um, sorry, for you guys who didn't come to Sunday school, you've got to get with the program. Neil basically set up this whole sermon for me, okay? Um, right, we, are, we as Christians are losing our privileged status in society. The Judeo-Christian hangover that our society has had, such that uh, the moral and cultural influence that Jews and Christians have historically had on Western society, is losing its privileged place and being replaced by other religious worldviews. Even atheistic worldviews are religious worldviews that don't agree with what we believe God has clearly said in His Word. And it's beginning to transform everything. And if you're visiting, uh, you're listening to a little bit of a family conversation, if you're not necessarily a believer in Jesus. But I hope that maybe listening to our family conversation will at least help you understand why sometimes Christians talk or react the way we do to certain things we uh, see happening in society. Because we, as Christians, are starting to experience some of what the Jews the Chronicler was writing to were experiencing. Now, the Chronicler is writing about 1000 B.C., sort of coming into the golden age of Israel when David was king. But the Chronicler is writing to disenfranchised Jews in the 300s B.C. under Persian oppression. Uh, and, you know, only a few years earlier, 
only God's providence saved his people when he brought Queen Esther into power before they were wiped out by King Haman's genocidal decree to kill all Jews. Now, we say this often, we are not yet at any sort of persecution of that level in this country, but we are certainly no longer privileged, and we need to take that into account. Uh, Many of you grew up in the age of King David, as it were, but are now entering the time of the Persian exile in our country. And that's true for all of us. So if uh, those of you who are older are disenfranchised, those of us who are younger are just disillusioned. Because what we've heard and learned our whole lives from the church, and what we've heard and learned from our society, have yet to match up. And kids, uh, as you grow up, you will have that experience as well. What you experience in the world is not going to match up with what you hear in church. And you're going to have a real faith decision to make about which you're going to follow. But as one person said, the time of which the chronicler was writing was a day of great things, but the time in which the chronicler was writing was a day of small things. My friends, we as Christians are entering, maybe entering a day of small things in the church in America. We may be in a day of lacking privilege and being disenfranchised or disillusioned. But let me tell you what we need not be. We need not be devastated. The disenfranchised and disillusioned don't need to be devastated because God is building His kingdom. God is building His kingdom despite opposition from the inside, despite opposition from the outside and through repentance and reformation. So the disenfranchised and disillusioned do not need to be devastated because God is building his kingdom despite opposition from the inside. Now, in verses 1 and 2, we read these uh, verses about the rise of David. Hiring, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also masons and carpenters, to build a house for him. And David knew that Yahweh had established him as king over Israel and that his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people, Israel. Right? So the chronicler is saying Yahweh is establishing. He established King David. And he he did this in contrast to Saul. Right, the fame, uh, verse 17, the fame of David went out into all lands and Yahweh brought the fear of him upon all nations. This is not what Yahweh did for Saul. Uh, just a few chapters earlier in First Chronicles 10, Saul was the king whom was slowly losing favor with his people inside and the kingdoms outside. But the people had demanded to have this king. And God said, no, that's not who you need. You are destroying what I need to do from the inside. But God has reached in anyway, building His kingdom, despite this opposition from the inside, and now established His ordained and chosen king over Israel through King David, whose line is meant to last forever. But, God has not established King David because he's so much better than Saul. David is part of the opposition from the inside, too. 
Right? Last week's message was about First Chronicles 13, where David did not obey God's law. David did not follow the way he was supposed to, and it ended in Uzzah's death. And here, as we get into verses 3 through 7, we see that David is still flaunting the Word of God. Deuteronomy 17.17 17, uh, the word of Moses, the word of God through Moses, said that the kings of the Israelites shall not acquire many wives for themselves, lest their hearts turn away. But verses 3 through uh, 7 are just telling us David took more and more wives in Jerusalem, and he fathered more and more sons and daughters. And we got this list of names, including one infamous name you've probably heard of, Solomon. Now, the chronicler doesn't get into the story of Solomon here. And that's not to whitewash David's story, just because everyone already knew that story. I mean, if I start talking about the first president of the United States, you probably don't need me to specify it was George Washington, right? So, people knew what happened with Solomon. They knew that Solomon was the child of the at least adultery, if not rape, of Bathsheba and the murder of her husband. And so to even include Solomon's name here is to point out that David is still acting like Saul. He's acting wickedly. But Yahweh is establishing the kingdom for the sake of the people, Israel. Verse 2. And the whole point, remember I said, what's the point of suddenly sticking this narrative in between the story of First Chronicles 13 and then First Chronicles 15, which will go on to tell of the ark coming home? What is the chronicler's literary point behind that? What's well, the point of all of the chronicles? Which is to give a sort of narrative sermon to the people of Israel in the 300s B.C. It, his literary choice has a theological point to give a sermon not to be discouraged and to know where their hope is under Persian rule. And so the whole point of this story is to bolster up God's disenfranchised and disillusioned people then and now. So we do not have to be devastated, being disillusioned or disenfranchised because God builds His kingdom through whom and when He so chooses. But the disenfranchised and disillusioned also don't need to be devastated because God is building His kingdom despite opposition from the outside as well. Right here we get the story of two uh, Philistine attacks. And David has to figure out how to deal with these. Actually, here we go from seeing how David was still acting like Saul to contradicting how David was acting like Saul. So in the first Philistine attack, we read, starting in verse 8, that when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went out against them. 
Now the Philistines had come and made a raid in the valley of Rephaim. But David inquired of God. Did he ask through a prophet? Did he ask through the high priest using the Uman and Thurman? I have no idea. But he went and he inquired through God's ordained way. He sought God's will, which was in contrast to Saul and how Saul had went about leading the kingdom. But also in contrast to himself in First Corinthians, uh, First Chronicles 13. Right? He came and he said, Lord, what is your will? What is it you want me to do? And God told him. And that is, serves as an example for us. Now, I, I don't want to get into the sort of complicated parts of what is God's will for my life? Who should I marry? What job should I take? That's a, that's a coffee conversation. So, I say that because I'm trying to advertise, please, call me, text me, let's go grab coffee, let's grab lunch, and talk about those things. That's kind of how I operate. But, uh, what is true of David here, and is often not true of Christians here, is that he started seeking God's will through God's word. Uh, so often we will have a choice before us, and we don't give a first thought to what does God's word say about this. Now, I've already said, sometimes there's complicated things. You get two good options, and then it's a larger conversation. But are we asking the first question? Does God want me to marry this person? Well, what does God's word say about who we can marry? So, First uh, Corinthians 7, and this time I meant Corinthians, First Corinthians 7 says, oh, well, we should only marry in the Lord. Oh, okay, so this person is not a Christian. I should not be dating them, more or less marrying them. Uh, or should I take this job? Well, again, there's all sorts of questions about what are you talented at and what do people uh, affirm you for, but what does God's Word say about this job? Now, some of them are obvious, okay? The Bible pretty clearly condemns prostitution. But what if it's a job in the financial sector? Well, I mean, the Bible says that uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, but it has no problem with money or wealth itself. In fact, material blessings are often called exactly that, a blessing from the Lord for which we should be uh, grateful and have gratitude for. But at the same time, it also says it condemns greed. Right? Greed is condemned on the same level as pride, homosexuality, and any number of other sins called an abomination. Okay, so what is this thing? Now you have to dig asking questions. Well, what is the case here? And then it's complicated. I can't tell you yes or no. I can just tell you, start with God's Word. Start with those principles. The second thing God, the second thing David does after this first Philistine attack is he looks at God's Word, and then he obeys God's Word in an interesting way. Uh, after, uh, he's, uh, after God has broken through, uh, he's put the Philistines down, they left their gods there. And David gave his command, and they were burned. And this was also in obedience to God's word through Moses, 
that any idols that were found were to be destroyed completely. Now, we know that time and time again, they had not destroyed idols, and it had led to religious and moral downfall. Whether it was Rachel hiding the idols uh, of her father underneath her, uh, or whether it was uh, victories that the Israelites had had, and then bringing all the idols home and beginning to worship them in their tents. Uh, David says, no, we do not want our hearts to be led astray. We want our hearts to be set only on Yahweh as God, and let Him only be our guide. And Paul in Colossians 3 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, all of which are idolatry. So again, this principle applies from the Old Testament to the New. We consult God's Word and we see what are the things that are liable to pull our hearts away from God. Well, those are the places we need to be searching ourselves to see, is there an idol lodging itself in my life? Is there something that I'm serving more than my Lord Jesus Christ? And we need to be repenting of that. Hint, hint for the last point where I'm headed. So then we get to the second Philistine attack. And here, uh, the Philistines come around again. And again, David goes and inquires of God. And God says, this time you shall not go up after them. Go around and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then go out to battle. For God has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as God commanded, and they struck down the Philistine army from Gibeon to Gezer. Now, here's where things get rough. So, so far, we've talked about opposition from the inside. That, uh, know that we also are the ones standing against God's kingdom through our sin, through the way we battle against one another inside the church, which is itself a sort of sin. Uh, and God continues to build His kingdom anyway, despite us, which comforts us, because it means that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the heights of heaven, nor the depths of hell can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It means that you can take the assurance of pardon seriously. Whoever confesses his sins rather than concealing them will obtain mercy. Our personal sins never separate us from God. But rather the whole point of what God is doing in His kingdom is taking sinners like us and conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. Just like Romans 8 said. And let me tell you what that means for you. If you're struggling with sin, if you're wondering if God loves you despite your sin, the answer is yes, He does love you despite your sin. Despite it. And He is going to conform you to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. He will not let anything work in such a way that you will be lost. Nothing can separate you. 
Now, Satan will try and convince you that you are separated, but don't believe it. Okay? When our hearts can give us, the Spirit is greater. He will not ever lose you, and He will never be ashamed of you, because you, Christian, are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It also means that when God's church is tearing itself apart from the inside, whether through uh, heresy and bad morals and ignoring God's word or through just being jerks to one another, uh, God will continue to build his church despite us. And he will continue to push us together so that the visible church has to learn to love one another, become sanctified, and step out into the world uh, as a witness of the love in our lives. The world will know we are His by whether or not we love one another. So we've, we've dealt with all of that. Now, why did you go back and rephrase all that? Because I wanted you to bring home the applications we've made so far. So far they've been about are we repenting? Are we seeking God? They're very personal. But ultimately, you're not going to do those things unless you see the strangeness of this second Philistine attack and God's instructions to him. Because I don't know if you know this, but some of you, many of you have been in the military. Ordinarily, when there's a military campaign going on, you don't sit around and wait to hear noises in the trees. That's not a normal military strategy, right? So now we're going from sort of this a lot of the things I've said are kind of practical, to be real honest. I think someone that just kind of believes in God or even an other than Christian preacher could say a lot of the things I've said so far. But when things get weird, that's where you've got to believe in Jesus. <laughs> and so when God tells him to do this, when God says be faithful this way and obey me here, uh, David has to really obey Second Chronicles 20.20. Believe in Yahweh your God and you will be established. Believe His prophets and you will succeed. Because God tells David to do something that can only be done by faith. Don't do ordinary military strategy. Sit around and wait. And when you hear this strange thing, then make your move. And you see, we are basically being told to do that all the time. And this is why I say what we hear in the church and what we hear out there are not the same. It's why we become disenfranchised and disillusioned. And it's why you kids will grow up with a very different experience than many of the people in this room right now. Because you will live in a stronger tension than any adult in this room has felt in our lifetime. So kids, I'm preaching to you. I'm, I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm loving you. I want you to hear me say that you are going to experience something none of us adults have experienced. Because you're going to experience more tension than we've ever felt. And you're going to have to exercise faith when the church says to obey Jesus and do weird things compared to what the world tells us to do. And, and at some point, someone's going to come around and say, so how do I know which I should listen to? Well, this 
This is a hard thing to think through. But grown-ups, you need to think about this so you can help your kids think about it. At the end of the day, all faith is circular. All faith is circular. What do I mean by that? Well, ultimately, to believe something, you have to believe in a first principle. So, for Christians, we believe the Word of God. We believe Jesus was raised from the dead. We believe God is real. And that affects how we believe and think about everything else. How we interpret everything. But ultimately, when it comes to the question of is there a God or not, that's faith. So, uh, as some have said, it actually takes more faith to be an atheist than to be a theist, than to believe in God. It takes more faith to not believe in God uh, than it does to believe in God, except. Here's where that line worked really well 50 years ago but it doesn't work as well today. The society around us no longer affirms even a generic deist belief in God. And so it actually gets far harder. Because if you're not being totally logical, we are social creatures. And we tend to go with whatever the society around us is saying. And so it is going to be far, far easier for our kids to reject belief in God. And it's going to be, I'm just talking to people my own age, I suppose, it's far easier for us sometimes to go ahead and walk the lines of what our society says than to do things that can make us lose friends, have difficult relationships with neighbors or co-workers. And this is why we again and again need to come back to this story. And to the story of the Bible. Um, I, I, I know in Sunday school there was this moment of talking about preaching and storytelling. This, this isn't about that, but it does parallel that. Uh, actually, all preaching is storytelling. It's coming week in and week out to hear the story, the true story. This is my story. This is my song. And I'm going to sing it all the day long. Jesus Christ is my Savior. Jesus lived, died, and rose for me. And when we come to church, we are hearing and telling the true story of the world through our sermons, through the Scripture reading, through the liturgy, to help us as the world tells us another story all week long. And so, each week, each day, each moment, we have to make a decision, which story will I believe? Because whether it's the story out there or the story in here, that is a faith decision. There's no ultimate set of logic to lead us to that first principle. There's things that hint at it. And again, this is a lunch coffee conversation. I'm, I'm planting some seeds to create some good conversations, okay? There's some hints as, at God as the first principle. But there is a very basic foundation of how we know what we know that is always a choice of faith. And I am telling you that this story has a lot of reasons for you to believe it and put your faith here. And I want, to, I want to assure you of the story. If you are disenfranchised, my friends, if you are disillusioned, my friends, God is building His kingdom, so don't be devastated. 
Instead, respond in repentance and reformation. Because God is building His kingdom through repentance and restoration. Faith keeps the disenfranchised and disillusioned from being devastated because it leads us to joyfully embrace repentance and reformation. Because that's how God builds His kingdom. So what is the Chronicler's point in this sudden interlude and story? It's to tell these Israelites in Persia in the 300s that they themselves are facing some judgment because of their sin and because of the sin of their kings. Now, are we, as Christians, being judged because of our sin? I don't know. I do know that even if we are, it's only, as Hebrews puts it, a a good father will always discipline his children, not to punish them, but to discipline them and lead them in the ways of righteousness. Now, the prophets had warned the Israelites that this was coming. The prophets had told them why Yahweh was going to use other nations like Babylon and Persia to judge them. But with every proclamation or explanation of judgment, there was always a continual promise that echoed Romans 8. When this happens, It is only for the sake of bringing you to repentance and restoration. That's why in the second Chronicles 7.14, the Chronicler will say, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, that has nothing to do with, with our country, okay? That has nothing to do with America. Let's do with the church. If we want to see the church grow and expand in influence, if we want to see the church grow and expand into our neighborhoods, then we must be those who are repenting and reforming. We must be those who are looking at ourselves, finding the idols in our lives, and turning away from them. And we must be those who embrace the story that God is building His kingdom despite opposition from the inside and despite opposition from the outside. And to continue to believe that the Lord will indeed bring the fear of Himself into all nations, even though He lets His, lets his people be exiled for a time. This chapter is an illustration of what David's about to do in his repentance. And it is an assurance to us that we, the kingdom of God will expand far, far more. Because we don't only have King David. We have something far greater. The greater King David. The David in the line of David, Jesus Christ, who was born of the line of David, lived a righteous life, and has been victorious for us already over the world over uh, devils, over societies, over everything, over death itself. Because He was obedient always. And He was obedient for us. He was never devastated, or di- but He was disenfranchised. He was disenfranchised for our sake. Jesus Christ was disenfranchised as the Son of God so that we will never be rejected but will always be received as sons of God to be conformed into His image. He 
was raised again from the dead so that we can know that there is a true and better golden era, a true golden era that will last forever when Jesus comes again. Jesus is the King in the line of David that has been established and will return again to establish the kingdom of God forever. And Christians, and all who put your faith in that king, you will be welcomed into this new society. You will never be disillusioned or disenfranchised again. And that, my friends, is good news. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you that you love your people and you continue to build your kingdom through us and despite us. We ask that in your mercy, you would bring us to repentance and reformation, and that that would move out from us, that you would uh, buoy up our hearts where we're disenfranchised and disillusioned, so that we would no longer be discouraged, but be encouraged in Jesus Christ our Lord, because of what he has done and what he says he will do. And may that give us courage. Courage to face society believing the true story. The story you've told us in your word. And may that enable us to love one another. To love those around us. And to always have a healthy calm. Because we know what is coming. Holy Spirit, do this in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.